You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. James chapter 1, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, please pull out the note provided in your bulletin. Um, There you can have uh, the scriptures for yourself and make sure we're preaching uh, God's Word to you. Uh, you can also, again, if you text bulletin to our texting church number 706-525-5351, uh, you can go there and it gives you a link to our Bible app. Uh, you, if you download the Version Bible app, you can find it in your uh, store on your phone. Uh, if you download it, go to the More tab, tap events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church and click on today's sermon title. And the same notes, quotes, and references that we have here uh, will be there on your phone to see, save, and share, all right? Uh, so please uh, take a moment to make sure uh, that we're preaching God's word to you. James chapter 1. We're going to look at the next set of verses, 9 through 11, and entitled a song. Uh, it was one of my favorite songs growing up, Two Sets of Joneses. I don't know if you've ever heard of it uh, from Big Tent Revival. That probably dates me a little But the song goes like this. It says, this here is a song about two sets of Joneses, Rothschild and Evelyn, Reuben and Sue. Just for discussion through random selection, we've chosen two couples who haven't a clue. Rothschild was lucky to marry so wealthy. Evelyn bought him a house on the beach. Reuben and Sue had nothing but Jesus, and each night they would pray that he cared for them each. And the rain came down, it blew the four walls down, and the clouds they rolled away, and only one set of Joneses was standing that day. James here, in the book of James, is offering divine wisdom to Christians who are scattered abroad the Roman Empire, facing various trials, difficulties, and adversities. Both rich and poor Christians worship together in the assembly to which James wrote. And James points out that trials come to both groups. Most Christians recognize poverty as a trial and would readily see the need for reliance upon the Lord in economic deprivation. Poverty should not allow Christians to become numb, destroy their spirit and joy in life, and become bitter against those who have more and seek to take some of what they have. James also reminds us that riches are also a trial, a terribly dangerous one. The danger of assuming that Christians should expect riches and that riches must mean God's blessing is a real danger. And we'll talk about that more today. Only with divinely given wisdom 
can we truly have God's perspective on our financial status? The question I want us to answer today is what attitude should Christians have toward their financial status? Let's read James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Let the brother of humble or poor, low circumstances boast, rejoice in his exaltation. Verse 10, But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities or his business ventures. Here's the first thing that I want you to write down. And we're going to just take the time this, this morning and unpack it. And it's simply this. Having nothing but Jesus is richer than having everything but Jesus. Catch what I just said. Having nothing but Jesus is richer than having everything but Jesus. I want to ask you, I mean, in the depths of your soul, do you really believe that your spiritual riches, your privileges, the position that you are in Christ, is that really better than having material riches or wealth on this earth? And I don't just mean that in a cognitive or theoretical sense. I mean, do you feel that in the depths of your soul this morning? I want us to first consider, and write it down, let's first consider having nothing but Jesus. What if we had no material wealth at all, but we still had Jesus? Let's think about the position of poor believers. And, and I want to say this, I'm aware that we have poor and rich alike in our, in our community, in our church here. At the same time, and, I'm, and I don't want to belittle the legitimate suffering of those who are impoverished in our church or in our community, but I do want to put one thing into perspective. Considering church history and the visible church around the globe, if you are hearing me this morning, you are one of the richest Christians to ever live. I just need you to understand that. More than likely, our brothers and sisters around the globe, when they read this verse, would put every person in our church into category number two. Okay, so riches here in some sense is relative. But that's not to belittle those who are trying to make their ends meet. All I want us to, want us to recognize is sometimes the ends are different <laughs> given the circumstances. And we are very much privileged. We are. All right? But what if we have nothing but Jesus? James here refers to the brother. Now, it's always important to note this. He's speaking to those. This is a message. This is wisdom in particular to those who've repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and God. Because when we do that, we become adopted into the family of God, and we are the children of God, such we really are. And in fact, when we call one another brother and sister in this church, 
We're more related in that way than any other way. That's how much the blood of Jesus unites us. Our relationships are more real than anything else. So he is addressing somebody sitting in his church who knows Jesus and they are poor. Their socioeconomic status is low. The world looks upon such people and assumes that they somehow have just missed it. That they have failed to acquire success in this life. But here's what the true believer knows by faith. That nothing could be further than the truth. We have been elevated in Christ. We belong to him and will one day inherit heaven and all its joy and splendor. Let the world think what they may, but we know the truth and have assurance in Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to John Calvin's comment on this verse, and he does an excellent job of just saying, what if we just had one thing? Ready? Get ready for this. He says, since it is the highest and incomparable dignity to be admitted to the society of angels, to get to go to heaven, and even to be made companions to Christ himself. You understand that the Bible calls Jesus our brother? Think about the relationship we have with him. Anyone who estimates this favor or grace of God justly will look at everything else which comes his way with equal indifference. Poverty, indifferent. Riches, indifferent. Why? Because he has this one thing. Therefore, neither poverty nor contempt nor nakedness, nor hunger, nor thirst will make his spirit so anxious that he will not be able to comfort himself by saying, this is the part that's good, here's what every Christian can comfort themselves with, since the Lord has given me what really matters, I must bear the loss of all lesser things with a serene mind. It's the truth. The one thing that matters, Christian, you already have. It is yours. And everything else truly is immaterial in the grand scheme of things. For eternity, a trillion years, it will not matter. But the one thing that will matter a trillion years from your has been given to you, has been graced to you. He says, this is how a lowly brother ought to glory in his high dignity. If he be acceptable to God, his adoption into the family of God alone is enough reason for happiness. He ought not to be too much troubled because his state in this life is less than prosperous. And it's true. It really is true. If we lived poor for 120 years and enjoyed the riches of Christ for eternity, they're not worthy to be compared. All right? I do want us to think, though, there's more, and I wanted to sit here and think, could we list all the things that we've been blessed with, and then you just realize, oh my goodness, we would be here for eternity. And so I just found one scripture, I don't want to, you know, wrest it from its context, but it's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, the author of Hebrews is contrasting the privileges of the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with the privileges that the believer has, the Christian has, in Christ. <clears throat> and listen to what he says. He says, instead, y'all, Christian, 
you have come to Mount Zion. Now, just to put this into perspective, he says this. You didn't gather around the base of Mount Sinai when it's on fire. That's where Moses ushered you to meet God. When Jesus ushers you to meet God, he takes you all the way to heaven, his dwelling place. You've, you've come to Mount Zion. Do you see the difference? Not Sinai, Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To myriads of angels, and there's a festive gathering. He's like, do you realize what, what awaits you? To the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. To a judge who is God of all. To the spirits of righteous people made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. That's what you have. Church, (coughs) it's not worthy to be compared. Those are all yours now. You've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. I've been reading this little book. It's just a Lutheran pastoral companion. I've just fallen in, in love with the stuff that Luther and those like him have written. And one of the things that he notes, and, and I would say I've never really thought about this when it comes to pastoral care, that a lot of times I've envisioned pastoral care as therapeutic, to go and give an encouraging word, to share a perspective in which that you can somehow endure this situation. And that, that's partly true. But what I like about Luther is Luther wanted this to say that, that pastoral care is charismatic. Now, let me explain that word. It just means it's gospel-centered. And he says the greatest comfort that a pastor can give to any person who is suffering or is in poor is to remind them of the last part of the creed, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, and eternal life. And church, I submit this to you with a generous respect. If those three things can't comfort you, there is no other comfort. If I can come to you and I say, do you remember, just realize, hey, your sins have been forgiven. Right? You will be resurrected. You will have eternal life. That's enough comfort for the world without end. Right? That's, and that's a comfort that no other group can give you. So I want you to think about that. Revel in your spiritual position which the Lord has opened for you. Revel in it. It's okay. It's not a notice. Notice what the word says. Boast. To rejoice in. Make much of it. Brag on God. It's all right. It's okay to boast in him. That's okay. Let's look at the second thing. Let's consider having everything but Jesus. Everything but Jesus. Now, commentators debate exactly if, Paul, if John, James, excuse me, let me go through all the New Testament authors. If James has in mind a rich Christian or just a rich person. And the reason why commentators debate is if you notice, he starts the section off saying brother, and then he says the one who's rich. I think you're probably reading too much into the text to to specify this is uh, just a rich person in general. I think he's talking about a rich person within the assembly. Like this brother, right? This one here. What about him? Now, here's the thing that I need you to notice in the context between James and his his half-brother and our Savior, Jesus. 
is I do want you to notice that there is an obstacle for the rich. Wealth is not wrong, but the Bible says over and over again, it is dangerous. You've got to be careful with it. All right? James is now speaking to those who have acquired much in this life. They have more than their needs met. They have, they have uh, money or material resources beyond their needs. They are wealthy by the world's standards. Financially, they lack nothing. They have the ability to purchase anything they desire. And he does not outright condemn their wealth. If you're looking for thou shalt not be rich, you won't find that. But he warns them to maintain a proper perspective with regards to their wealth. Listen to what Proverbs 18, 11 says. And remember, I've tried to share this with you, that James, the book of James, is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. All right? But Proverbs 18, 11 says, The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. So he says, here's one of the dangers of riches, is if you put your security into your wealth, and you think, well, hey, I've built up this wall, and my life is protected. No harm or evil will befall me. The Bible goes, you've deluded yourself. All right? There's only one refuge. There's only one shield. There's only one security, and that's Jesus. Nothing else can replace him. Of the two economic extremes, I'm going to be, I mean, <laughs> explicitly, James and Jesus prefer, prefers poverty. Now, why would they prefer poverty? The overriding thrust of Jesus' teaching on wealth is that money or material resources can become a major competitor to your allegiance to God. That's why it's so dangerous. In fact, listen to what, what the Jesus calls it. In Mark 4, 19, he says that wealth is deceitful. It's deceitful. And can distract people from taking care of their spiritual condition, causing them to forfeit eternal life. And I think it goes along this way. I think one of two things. The prosperity gospel that's rampant in American evangelicalism says if you're really favored by God, if you're really living the good life and being obedient, you should expect to be blessed materially beyond imagination. That is a false gospel and is nowhere found in the Bible. Just want you to know that. So if you're thinking that, that's your theology, it is not true. People have made promises for God that God himself has not made. Then the other part is this, and I think this is what James is at, because he's not necessarily having in mind this American gospel. But it's this concept is, I think what happens is, in a general way, because I have met equally prideful, arrogant people who are poor, but when you have wealth, the potential is to say, I've never needed or depended upon anybody else or relied upon anything else for my status, for my safety. Why do I need to do that in a spiritual way? Do you see the difference? Whereas those who are sometimes more economically poor, they would go, I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck and just get whatever. Whatever comes to me, I'll take. And so the poor may be more open to hear, the gospel is free. Take it, right? Gladly. And the poor may, and the rich may go, mm, I don't see the need for that. And that's what's so deceitful and spiritually dangerous about it. Because your material wealth, and churches should know this, 
whether you're poor or rich, is absolutely no indication of your relationship with God. There's only one thing the Bible says, you're all sinners, right? So we are, and remember, what is the premium that Jesus puts on entering into the kingdom of God? The poor in spirit, the spiritually impoverished. And so if your wealth, whatever it is, if your poor status makes you think God doesn't love me, that's false. If your economic status, if you're rich and going, God must love me, it's true, but not because you're wealthy. All right, he loves you in spite of yourself. Okay, listen to, this is the, this probably the famous illustration about Jesus dealing with wealth. It's in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 through 25. The rich young ruler, right, comes to Jesus and, and in a really fascinating way. He goes, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you. This is aspirational. This is good. He's ready to go and commit his life to Jesus. As one of the disciples, he could have been the 13th disciple, some commentators say. And so Jesus tells him, okay, you want to inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God. Have you done all the commandments? <laughs> and shockingly, this should shock us, he goes, yeah. Right? Ten commandments go through, and it's almost like clear, like in the background, like, you didn't listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But it's okay, all right? He's like, you've never, like, called somebody an idiot in anger, never looked at someone else in lust, never had to swear in order to, to say, I'm telling you the truth, never? He goes, no, perfect, right? He goes, well, then there's one last thing then, you know. If you're so perfect, sell everything you have and come follow me. I mean, literally, the idea is this. Jesus is going to dictate to this man, here's how you're going to spend your money. And church, he does the same thing to us. That's what it means by lordship. He's over lord of everything. I'm going to dictate what you do with your money. And listen to what it says in Luke 10, 21. It says, looking at him. I love this statement. Okay. It says, Jesus loved him. Whoa. Did you just pause a second? And I would love to have known what was on Matthew and Mark, like, like, it would have been Peter's, long story, but the disciples that were sitting there watching Jesus, how did they know he loved them? Did like a tear well up in his eye when he's about to tell him this, like when he's about to drop the bomb, right? They're just sitting there and Jesus looks at him and like just a single tear like loved him. And he says this and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me right come on you can come you can be 13 right it says but he was dismayed by this demand he went away grieving because he had many possessions and then jesus looked around and said to the disciples i love when jesus says things just to get a rise out of the disciples i mean literally he does it he said how hard how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god and notice what the disciples said. The disciples were astonished at his words. <laughs> They're like, what did you just say? Again, Jesus said to them, children, he calls them kids. Hey, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then his famous analogy, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here's what one commentator said, riches steal Okay, they put steel into the unregenerate against the primary requirement 
for entering the kingdom of God. This is helpless dependence. There's not a single person who doesn't come to Jesus on their hands and knees. It's just the truth. It is difficult for the rich person to present themselves. Because here's what you have to do. And this is to everybody. We are presenting ourselves to Jesus as naked, humble beggars. I don't have anything. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's our only hope. So are the rich just left out to rot? That's not what the Bible says. There's something for them to rejoice in too. Notice the opportunity for the rich. While James acknowledges the difficulty and danger of riches, he absolutely comes to the realization that they do have something to rejoice in. And that would be Christian rich brothers and sisters, right? Listen to what the rest of Jesus, what Jesus said to the, the disciples are astonished. Basically like, you've just ruled out rich people from the kingdom of God, right? That's what they heard it as. Say it again. And then listen to what Jesus, how he follows up on the story of the rich young ruler. And this should give every person hope. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Right? Like, you got to realize, too, you're, you're walking around with the man who embodies poverty. They said, I don't have no place to lay my head. I go to the next place. I mean, considering these were fishermen, they still live better lives than Jesus did. Do you understand that? And Jesus is telling them, hey, you know, this is the life. And anybody who's rich, they don't make it in. And they're just going, there's nobody, Jesus. There's nobody. And listen to what Jesus says, and this is what we can rejoice in. He says, looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible. Oh, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. So here's the part. He goes, I'm not saying that they will not enter the kingdom. You just need to understand this. It's going to take a work of God in their hearts for them to. You see how that works? And so here's what, if you're rich and you've come to Christ, which really should include all of us, it means God has done something impossible for us. He humbled us. He broke our hearts. He put us on our knees and we begged him to come into our life. And God did that because in our condition, we would never have. We would never have. A rich or high person is not accepted by God because of who he is or what he has. I mean, you got to remember, when you're dealing with the God of the universe, what are riches to him? They're just loans. I mean, that's really all it is. Nothing to him. If you were the ruler of the whole earth, it would not change who you are before God. It just wouldn't. The rich and high have to approach God bare as having nothing and approach him just like a little child, right? Isn't it amazing? Man, it's so true. Like the older I get now that I got kids, it's amazing like the lack of fear that my daughter has in asking me for stuff, right? Surely dad can do this. Like, it was even funny the other day, she wanted to go with uh, Mandy to the store and she said, Mama, I promise I won't ask for anything, Right? Isn't that so amazing that like a kid, a kid just doesn't care. They don't mind being completely dependent upon mom and dad. And that's what we're doing with God. I, I don't have anything. Can I just ask for it? And God, gladly, gladly. 
those whose focus on riches progressively diminish the measure of their eternal reward. Did you hear that? This is, I think, one of the hard things about American materialism. And again, I, I believe we are privileged to be in the country in which we are. And with those privileges comes amazing responsibilities. But isn't it the truth, like, we get so caught up in the rat race of the American dream that we fail to consider it from a divine perspective. And then in doing so, it's just like Christians become numb to the promises of God's word. I mean, really, I mean, just think about it right now. And I know, Baptists, we like to be dignified. But if you won that lottery right now, you'd be crazy. Right? And, and I'm not making this up. You have gained something way more than that. You really have. And just think about how our like response is. It just betrays our heart. I mean, think about this. I never forget, I was driving with Sam Reynolds. Sam and I, he's a pastor in Florida, one of my best friends. I've known him since eighth grade. This should tell you how just men are. We're driving to college back and forth, and every now and then we play the game like, hey, if you've got a million dollars, what would you do, right? And the first thing we always like, first of all, we're going to pay off his student debt. Right? That's the first thing. But you play that game. But have you ever thought, like, man, if your sins are forgiven, what would you do? Have you ever thought about that? If you ha- would get eternal life, what would you do? And, here, and, and let's just be honest. People are like, well, man, I'd be telling everybody about it, wouldn't you? You see how that works? I'd be deeply appreciative of knowing that, hey, this body will go away and there'll be no more sickness, pain, crying. Yeah, no more anxiety. Oh, man, you have that. Such you really are. That's yours. What am I supposed to tell those who are rich? And luckily, Paul told Pastor Timothy, here's what you tell the rich. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age. Notice what he says. It's the present age. Where we are now. Not to be arrogant. Don't be boastful or prideful. But to set their hopes or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And this is one of those verses that just changes you. When you realize the little things or the big things that you enjoy in your life, they all came from the hand of God. All of them. And so, in fact, in some ways, if a rich person understands God's perspective on the riches, they will rejoice in their humiliation because they should go to themselves going, I don't know how I'm saved. Okay, I'm being honest. It was impossible, and God did it. And then here's the thing. I don't know why he's been so good to me. You see how he rejoices in his humiliation? I'm a poor, miserable sinner, and look what God has done. You see how that works? So they rejoice in their humiliation and being brought low. Evelyn's daddy was proud of young Rothschild. He worked the late hours to be number one. But just newlyweds and their marriage got rocky. He's flying to Dallas. He's having a son. Old Reuben was holding a Gideon's Bible. He screamed, it's a boy, so that everyone heard. And the guys at the factory, they took a collection. Again, God provided the bills they didn't carry. The rain came down. It blew the four walls down. The clouds, they rolled away. And one set of giants. Standing that day. Look at verse 11. 
and we'll wrap up. It says, for the sun rises and together with the scorching wind draws up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities or business ventures, his journeys. Here's what I want you to consider last. The third thing, consider that life is brief. This is going to come up over and over again in the proverbial wisdom of James. Consider that life is brief. James depicts a rich person suddenly dying even in the midst of his or her business plans, right? I'm going to go out here, and he's going to talk about this later. I'm going to go do this, this, make this money. And he goes, and what happens if you die before you get that done? All right? James describes a common occurrence in the Middle East. Mourning is often welcomed by colorful flowers in the desert. And then bursts from the cool night. Their death is sudden as the hot sun rises and that wind begins to blow. And all that beauty fades away. The withering and fading of wealthy people is as sudden as the death of wildflowers. Death always intrudes. Is that not the truth? It just intrudes. Life is uncertain. Disaster is possible at any moment. One of my favorite theologians, Mark Lowry, he's a comedian. I never forget, he said, this too shall pass. Either it will pass or you will pass. That's good theology. The Bible makes it first. Hey, it's going to pass. The question is, are you going to pass before your riches will? Or will your riches pass before you will? But it will pass. It will pass. Either by losing your money or being brought low through some circumstance, your money is transitory. Or what we call the eschatological reversal is on judgment day, your, your riches goes to ash. They mean nothing to God. The specter of death hangs over all of us. Death interrupts our schedule, our busyness, our best laid plans, and it is foolish to trust in what will not last. This is so important. You get this. You have an appointment with death. I don't understand. Like, Grapple with that. I know we don't like to think about it, but grapple with it. You have an appointment with death. One day this life will be over and you will face God. We'll be face to face with him. And it's only the cross of Christ that can lift up the poor sinners to salvation and can bring down the richest person <laughs> to humiliation. And that's a good thing. Jesus humbles us all and makes us level at the cross. So what are you trusting in when this life is through? When it's all done and you can't take any toys with you? Do you know for certain you will go to heaven when you die? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? And then believer, are you using what God has blessed you with in a way that pleases Him? Do you desire to serve the Lord and please Him above all else? Remember what Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24 says, This is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, The wise person should not boast, in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in their wealth. But the one who boasts, if you're going to make much of something, you should boast or make much of this, that he understands and knows me. Right? I have a relationship with God. Boast in that. 
He says that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Make that what you're proud about. That he has saved you. So what is the point of this story? What am I trying to say? Is your life built on the rock of Christ Jesus or a sandy foundation you've managed to lay? Needless to say, Evelyn left her husband and sued him for every penny he had. I truly wish he would find Jesus before things get worse than they already have. The rain came down. It blew the four walls down. The clouds, they rolled away. One set of Joneses was standing that day. Which ones will you be? I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. No matter your financial status, biblical wisdom prevails and says what matters is repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and God, that he bled and died regardless of anything you are, what you possess, or what you've done. His love for you knows no bounds. And he, he proves it by God raising him from the dead, that we offer freely the forgiveness of sin and resurrection and eternal life in Jesus' name for every person who will come to the foot of the cross. And if you're ready to accept, to confess that you're a sinner and call out in faith to Jesus, he's not dead, he's alive, he hears our thoughts and whispers, he's God, to forgive you and to grant you eternal life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to lead you in a prayer that you can repeat as a call of salvation to Jesus. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner. And deserve judgment. But like the rich young ruler, I believe you loved me. You came down for me. You lived a holy life. And you shed your blood and died on the cross to forgive and erase all my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Grant me eternal life. Be my Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to tell you what Jesus' commands are in the Bible regarding what's our next right step in following him. And it's simple. It's baptism. He commands everyone to be baptized. Baptism shows that when you go under the water, you are saying that you believe and identify with Jesus' death for your sins. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying you believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and new life in Christ everlasting. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to take the next step of talking to me about baptism. You can fill out that tear-off panel on the back, text BAPTISM, text BELIEVE to our text and church number, go to our website, fill out the form. Just let me have the opportunity to talk to you about being baptized in Jesus' name. And then with every head bowed and every eye closed, this week in case you can begin to play. There's just a, a very famous proverb that I've, I just believe would be appropriate for us to pray in this time of reflection and meditation. And you probably know it. 
And this is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. And I think this should be the prayer of every believer, all right, that wants God's wisdom. It says this, keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. Will you pray that prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to pray your word back to you. We do pray, as the writer wrote, keep falsehood and deceitful words far from us. Lord, may we not believe ourselves to be better than we are and no worse than we are, but sinners in need of redemption. And grant us repentance and faith in Christ alone. And Lord, may we not be deceived by the riches of the world, that if we somehow possess them, that we're safe and secure and set. But may our security and our strength be only in you. Lord, we pray that you would, we would not live in poverty or wealth, but we would take each day and, and use the grace you give for our existence that day. Help us to be grateful for that. Lord, may we never deny you. Or may we, may we never feel so secure in our situation that we can say we didn't need God's help or this isn't from God. May we look to you for everything. And then, Lord, may we not be so impoverished, either personally or corporately, that we would go and, and justify living certain ways just so we can make ends meet and compromise our integrity. Help us to be people that pursue you and revel in your riches. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and all God's people said, amen. I got just a couple of quick announcements I want to share with you. Again, I want to remind you, if you need uh, this bulletin, you can text bulletin to our text and church number 706-525-5351. Don't forget the deacon election and communion next week uh, meets 
uh, us out here at 1030. We'll partake at 1045, and if you need a ballot, you can get that then. The remainder, the rest of you guys, we'll still have our election uh, at the end of the service, so uh, don't forget that. Don't uh, uh, forget to look for your email for Pastor Aaron's Christian Ethics class sign up. Um, also, don't forget to RSVP for church. You can RSVP one of three ways. On the back of that tear-off panel, you can check the dates you want to reserve, and we will manually enter them for you. Uh, that's, that's our honor, so please take the time to do that. You can text RSVP to our text and church number, or go to our website and click Reserve. Um, I'm trying to make sure I'm getting everything else. Uh, don't forget about Sunday school, 10 o'clock next week. Brother Charles, uh, downstairs. Uh, if you have a child in nursery or, or uh, uh, children's church, please RSVP as well. And then Miss C, y'all met yesterday? Very good. Okay, so, and then it's every Saturday. You'll be here Saturday at 10? This coming Saturday at 10? Once a month. Once, my bad family. All right, I thought it was the, you know, we're going to read this thing quick. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Uh, this is a, 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 a book club through uh, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, right? Mrs. Lewis. This is about C.S. Lewis's wife. An amazing story. If you need a, a copy, Miss C has it. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one la- last worship song? One last worship song. I'll put those two together. <laughs> I love uh, that scripture. Also, Brother Josh, and I'm not adding to his what a wonderful word he gave us this morning and I'm reminded of the disciples when they were sent out and they were given power over demons and everything and they come back rejoicing and say Lord the demons are seeing us mm-hmm. and, and Christ's word to them he, he made sure they understood you know it's cool I, I hear that power's there and all of this but rejoice not in all of that but rather that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life praise God that's our rejoicing and everything. And, I, you know, our country is in dire need of turning back to him. And the, the, the promise of God is true no matter if it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament to this age that my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear, he says, and I will heal the land. And if we've ever, that's the only absolute truth I know to offer the word is that because it comes straight from God's word. And so as we stand and we pray this prayer, really it's what we're doing. We're asking God to do that. So let's stand and ask him to hear our prayer. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.